right. Thank you, worship team. Our ushers are uh, prepared to bring note sheets and pencils around for you. So if you need a Bible, raise your hand and they'll be happy to provide a Bible for you. As we will be studying in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 today. The second major movement of this chapter that has so much to teach us about the gathering of the saints on the Lord's Day. I'm hoping that the audio is figured out. I think we, uh, we had an issue. S- somebody had changed some of the leads around on the back of our soundboard, so I apologize for that confusion earlier. If you didn't hear audio, I think we've got it all settled. Our soundboard, sound booth uh, team does a really great job of figuring out challenges like that, so we appreciate the time that they put into it. Before we get into today's passage, I wanted to share just a, a few lingering points from last week's sermon, which you might say, how could there be more? You preached for like an hour and 20 minutes last week, and so thank you for your patience in that. Um, but there are a couple of more things that I did want to mention. I wasn't sure how the message would be received, but I am blessed to see the willingness uh, for our church family to engage in this topic and to have conversations continuing on and on about uh, what we learned last week. I hope that you were blessed by further discussion after the service was finished, that you went home and got back into that word and and talked about it together. There is no need, friends, to be fearful of what the Bible tells us. It is of God. We don't need to run away from the things that God shows us in the scriptures. We should engage this text. We should think through it. If our instinct is to resist the Word of God, and this is not just last week's test, but anywhere where we open up God's Scripture and it challenges us in a way that's difficult, or it presents to us ideas that we don't fully understand, if our instinct is to resist or to defend what we think is is our best way of doing things, then we might want to stop and pause and prayerfully ask ourselves, why? Why is my instinct to go against what seems to be said here in the text? especially in the context of of the head coverings, I encourage you to think about, you know, just the consistency that we take with these things. I know that fashion is very important to people, uh, but I've known several people who've had jobs where they got hired and they were instantly told, you've got to wear a hairnet here, or you've got to put a hat on here, because that's just the way we do things. And usually that's not met with a major resistance or opposition. So here, if the Lord in his scripture is saying that there is a, a, a wonderful sign, uh, that, that can be a blessing to us and can help us to remember who, who is the head, that Christ is the head of all things, and that he has presented an order for us, then we should consider that. If you think and pray carefully about this topic and you feel compelled to begin using a, a head covering of some kind, I do want to offer some caution for you too. Please don't make that decision based on wanting to be super spiritual or to come across as, as, as like a hyper-Christian. We don't want to get that mentality that there are the nominal Christians and then the super-Christians. That's ex- ex- actually the opposite of what we're trying to accomplish here. The unity of the church, as we will see in the text today, is uh, of great importance to us. We don't have a desire to create a two-tiered hierarchy of, of Christians. If the scripture made this issue of, of head coverings a first-tier item, something of absolute importance, then we, as your elders, we would treat it like that. But again, without a more robustly clear and definitive interpretation of what we studied last week, we would risk falling into a legalistic error if we were to take too hard of a stance on it. And so that is why we, as pastors, are are urging people to think through this on their own, to make their own decision based on their conscience. And let us all respect one another's decision to do what we feel led to do. 
Let's demonstrate the kind of grace towards one another that should characterize a, a group of people who are who they are because of grace, the grace of a Savior who has every reason uh, to punish us for our sin, but instead took our punishment upon His own shoulders. Make every effort not to let this become a status symbol of some kind. It is simply an outward symbol of a heart that loves the order that God has established. Also, let's be patient and recognize that some families have very difficult things to consider. While head coverings are not generally in the West associated with the Christian church, head coverings can in some places be uh, associated with Islam. And so we, we want to be careful of that. People often think of Islam when they see a woman with their head covered. We don't want to confuse others, but there is also a cost to setting the tone for our culture. We need to recognize that. It's going to be a pioneering kind of work to try and revive this useful and biblical custom. And it's going to take time for it to be seen once again as a Christian norm. So let's be patient. Let's not give up hope. Uh, we can impact the culture around us as the church. The benefit of making that kind of an effort is this, that we will proclaim in a biblical way that we trust God to set in order and we have a useful and regular sign that the genders are unique and that the church leadership roles are determined by God for His glory. The one who established them is the one who gets to tell us how we worship Him. And it's, it's not established by the whim of our culture or the, the changing tides of fashion. So with that being said, we're going to turn our attention away from head coverings to the second matter of importance in chapter 11, a matter which is also directly related to the gathering of the saints on the Lord's Day. And so we've got 1 Corinthians open to chapter 11, and we're going to read a large chunk today. I'm going to preach this same passage of Scripture next week from a different angle. We're going to address two of the main running themes through these verses. So we're going to look at 17 through 34, starting today in verse 11. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worst. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another goes drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some 
have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Would you bow with me and ask uh, along with me for the Lord's guidance and direction as we interpret this passage and apply it in a faithful manner. Mighty God, your word is, is good to us. It is like a nourishing food that gives us strength, that gives us the energy to walk in a manner that is in accord with the life that Christ lived. And Father, we should make no mistake about it. Our aim is not to be like some example in the world, unless that person is following after you. You are our prime example, Jesus. We want to think like you and talk like you and walk as you walked. We want to love one another as you do. We want to call things what they are. We want to be truthful. We want to be careful as you were. And we thank you, Lord God, for the ways that you instruct us to do that. So help us to interpret this passage as it pertains specifically to the sacrament that you have given us to remember both your person and your work, Jesus, that we might honor you and recognize that it is only because of what you have done that we can even approach you in a way that isn't scornful, that isn't rebellious. We love you, Lord, and thank you for helping our hearts comply to your will. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, last week we observed that the first phrase linked today's passage with last week's passage. And so in 1 Corinthians 11, 2, Paul says, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I have delivered them to you. Okay, that was last week's passage, how it began. So they were doing a lot of things right. They were keeping a lot of the traditions properly. Uh, that, that is a general, generally positive tone. But as Paul looks at this next topic that has to do with the worship on the Lord Day, his tone changes, doesn't it? starting in verse 17, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Now, why is the apostle not able to commend the Corinthians on this following point? Before we address the obvious, I want us to first recognize what Paul is implying here. Because what he's implying here is that the Lord's Supper is supposed to be for our better. It's supposed to be for our benefit. The Lord's Supper is is for our strengthening, it is for our encouragement, it is a means of grace for God's church. They were treating it in such a way that it stopped being what it was meant to be and it had become something different, something that brought not unity to the church, but division. The Lord's Supper is a blessing that Christ gave to His people just hours before He gave Himself on the cross. If something were to happen to me, now I'm still a relatively young person, and I'm sure that in 10 years my goalpost of what is young will move, and I'll still think I'm a young person, but you know, at 43, I'm not that old. If something were to happen to me, and I was fairly certain, maybe I got sick or I got injured, I was fairly certain that my death was coming sooner than I expected, I would be extremely motivated to give something significant to my family some wisdom, some encouragement, some resources that might ease their struggle once I had gone, right? 
And by the way, Missy is not allowed to die before me because if she does, it will be a disaster. She knows everything in my household. So many things I would be lost on if she took those to the grave with her. Now, Jesus loved his disciples. He loved them. And so he did exactly what I'm talking about. He knew that his end was near. And so he wanted to give them something that he knew that they needed, especially in his absence. He gave them the Lord's Supper as a sacramental blessing and instructed them to make regular use of it. And I say that to help you see that the supper is not just some ritual. It's not just one last cumbersome rule that the disciples had to follow right before Jesus left. He says, okay, one more rule. Here's what you also have to do. By no means should we let ourselves think of the supper in that way. It is a gift to us from God. God has been very generous to his church, and there is no possible way we could number the blessings that he has given to his people. But there are two very significant activities that God's word has laid out for the church that carry a heavy symbolic meaning, which have come to be understood as the sacraments of the church. Because the scripture speaks of them in a sacred way, and they have a particularly sanctifying impact on the believers who practice them. Now, one of the sacraments that we were able to celebrate last week is baptism. Baptism is one of the sacraments of the church. It is a, it is a practice that is, is a joy to us. And last week we had uh, both Christine Valentine and Sabrina Fulkerson come forward to show the world that not only have they been saved by God, but they want to be connected to the work of God's church From this day forward, they want to be involved with that. They want the world to know who they are in Christ. Rather than letting a culture set their identity for them, they instead are saying that Christ has given me a new name. He has identified me with himself. I am a Christian. I follow after Jesus. So the Lord's Supper, in many ways like baptism, carries symbolic significance. It is designed to remind the Christian that we have been brought to life by the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ. We were formerly dead in our sins, as we're going to learn tonight as we look deeply at what it means to be fallen as our first father Adam was fallen, that sin is not something that just affects the wicked people of the world. You just take the wicked out and you've got it right. It affects the people of the world. All of the people who are born from Adam deal with sin. So we were dead in our sins. Jesus, however, never sinned. When he came to this earth, he was not born under Adam. As Paul mentioned earlier, he was born of a virgin. And so he did not inherit the curse that Adam was willing to pass or was forced to pass on to us. He was a new federal head, a new representative. And all who are in him have a new origin. Those of us who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, which is all of us, earn the wrath of God. And no matter how hard we worked, no matter how hard we strive to walk away from that sin, to change our lives, to reform ourselves, none of it could purify us to the degree that we deserve to be near to this God again, whom we had offended so, so deeply. It took something supernatural for us to be saved. It took God himself taking on flesh, Jesus Christ coming and living a life that perfectly fulfilled the covenantal demands of the law. Jesus walked in the truth. Not only did he avoid every sense of wickedness, but he never failed to love. He never failed to glorify the Father. He never ignored the positive commands that God had given. 
because of the central and pivotal role that the person and work of Jesus Christ play in the life of Christians, we regularly participate in a meal that celebrates that work. Jesus didn't just come to be an example for us. He came to live perfectly and then to give that perfect life as a substitutionary sacrifice for anyone who would believe and trust in Him. And those who are calling themselves Christians here today, who have a new identity in Christ, have that identity because the suffering that they deserved to experience because of their rebellion against God was experienced by Christ instead. When He bled and suffered and was rejected and scorned by man, every bit of that was what we deserve. But taking it upon His own shoulders, He fulfilled our debt to God to death, even with His own life. And on the third day when he rose again, he showed us that he is more powerful, not only than our sin, but also more powerful than the grave. And so this death, burial, and resurrection was the means by which we might be saved. In fulfilling the Lord's Supper, we eat bread. We drink wine or grape juice. We look back to what Christ did, and we look forward to his promised return. Now, if, if you come from a Roman Catholic background, and we're blessed that a lot of people at our church have come from a Roman Catholic background. We've been able to minister to them and share the, the gospel with them and, and help them to grow in truth. If you come from that kind of a background, you might recall that the Catholic Church sees a couple of useful activities, namely marriage and the ordination of priests. They see those as sacraments as well. But when you look at what the Scripture has to say about those things, they are not elevated to the level of a sacrament, nor are they universal. Not everyone becomes a priest. Not everyone gets married. The Roman Catholic Church also adds penance, which is the ritualistic confession and good deeds that are supposed to wash away some of the things that you've done wrong. They, they add confirmation, which is a series of tasks that one must complete before they are declared good enough to be recognized as a true Catholic, a full member of the Church. And they also consider last rites, which are special prayers, that are supposed to be delivered by a priest before someone passes away to ensure that they're going to get to heaven in the right manner, they add those three activities to the list of sacraments as well. But here's the problem. The Bible doesn't elevate the first two that I mentioned to the level of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And the second three are actually confusing the gospel. They're completely unjustified in the word because they make it seem as though people have got to work alongside God synergistically, to secure the salvation of mankind. We declare that it is Christ's work and person alone that makes us saved. So Protestant churches generally recognize only two activities as biblically commanded sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And they are useful and instructed for all believers who call upon the name of Christ. Churches that are not practicing the Lord's Supper are worse off for it, friends. They are missing one of the sanctifying measures that God has given to the church for her benefit and for her strength. And it's not too long ago that our governor in California shut down the state due to the virus. And some Christians in California went as long as a year without experiencing the very unique joy of taking the bread and the cup alongside their brothers and sisters, reflecting on his sacrifice and his resurrection together, anticipating the promise of his return and the completion of his promises to us here on earth. And that was crippling to them. It was 
it was difficult for believers to not be able to participate in the Lord's Supper. But neglecting the Lord's Supper is not the only way to miss out on its blessings. The Corinthian church were practicing something that looked like the Lord's Supper, but in fact it was not. 1 Corinthians 11.20 indicates that whatever they were doing, saying this is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. And so the supper was not acting as a blessing to them. It was causing division. It wasn't the supper's fault. It was their faulty practice of the sacrament. As a sacrament, the Lord's Supper should be handled with reverence and with love. And sadly, it has not been handled that way among these Corinthians. And so Paul is writing to correct that. He is determined in this passage to reform their practice of the supper so that they will once again experience the blessings and the joy of it. Now here's the problem. The way that these Corinthians are conducting themselves at the Lord's table is leading to more and more divisions among the people. We've seen this already among the Corinthians, haven't we? In the ways that they look at their leadership. Some of them align themselves with one teacher and some with another. Well, here we see that that ongoing disunity actually has infested the Lord's table for them as well. Verse 19 says something very interesting, and I want to remind you that um, I'm not going to handle the whole of the passage this morning because we're going to come right back to this large chunk of scriptures next, next week and look at the other end of the Lord's Supper and its function. But verse 19 hints at the fact that sometimes division is necessary. We can't just be arms wide open and, and pretend to ourselves that everybody's in the same family, that everyone's on the same page. The scripture tells us that that's actually far, far from the truth. So there is some division, some distinction that is necessary. But among believers, among those who call upon the name of Christ together, there should be no division. There should be unity. We should be striving towards that. And so Paul is compelled to return to the elementary teaching regarding this practice. He's going to remind them of the origin of the Lord's Supper. He's going to remind them of its implementation, how we're supposed to go about doing the Lord's Supper. And then he's supposed to remind them of the meaning of the Supper, what significance it carries. First of all, let's look at the origin of the Lord's Supper. Verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So reflecting on this couple of verses here. In verse 23, Paul's revealing where he got his instruction regarding this sacrament from. Where did he get it from? He got it from Jesus. The Lord delivered it to him, and he's delivering it to them. Now, Paul isn't just insisting that they adapt his personal interpretation of the sacrament. He's insisting that they all do it the way that Jesus commanded it to be done. And so as an apostle, Paul has seen the risen Christ, hasn't he? That's what makes an apostle an apostle. They are called of God. They see the resurrected Lord as proof that he did rise from the grave. And then they are commissioned and sent out by God to go into the world and testify to his resurrection. They had special leadership position in the early church. We don't have apostles in that way today because Christ is not revealing himself personally like that to individuals right before their eyes. But Paul had seen the risen Christ. Paul's intent is not to draw attention to himself. It is to draw attention to the Christ whom he has seen. The Christ who has given this gift to the church in the first place. 
So we could read about that in the Synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where Jesus lays out and it is recorded historically this Lord's Supper that we're talking about today. The Gospel of John alludes to the Lord's Supper, but it does not describe it in any detail, which is interesting. Paul grounds the tradition in history. He shows us that it was established on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, right? Now this betrayal, he mentions a betrayal, which is interesting. The betrayal happened at the hands of Judas, one of his own disciples. And that's something that we should keep in our minds. Every time we take the communion and think about the historical context of it, we're reminded that the Roman Empire and its soldiers may have been the ones who physically put the Lord to death. But that does not render the people of God free from blood guiltiness in the matter. It was one from within. It was Judas Iscariot who turned Jesus over, one of the twelve disciples. And then it was the high priestly council of Israel that lobbied so furiously for the maximum penalty possible for Jesus, which was crucifixion. The cross can never become only what those outside did to God's Son. Our sin, our failure, necessitated the cross. And likewise, those from within national Israel and even Jesus' most intimate circle of friends played a role in bringing about that tragedy. So I think it's, it's telling there that in setting and establishing the standard, Paul goes to the lengths of mentioning the betrayal in this regular activity that we're participating in. We know that this tradition that Paul received was itself an interpretation of an even older tradition established by God for his people. It was a modification of the Passover meal that the Israelites had celebrated once a year ever since their exodus out of Egypt and their slavery there. And so there are, there are illustrations, there are imageries that are shared between that what was a sign of what was to come, that freeing of the people of Israel from a physical slavery, that is similar in some ways to how Christ frees us from the deeper reality of our spiritual slavery. While we were slaves to our sin, in faith to Christ, we have now been released from that bondage. We are now on a journey out of it and into a holy land that God is preparing for us where we will have perfect fellowship with Him. In the meantime, we have been claimed as His. We belong to Jesus Christ. And so this Passover meal was practiced by the Jews once a year, and it included extensive teaching. When the family would gather together to do this Passover meal, each of the elements had meaning, and they would teach those things to the children. In fact, Jews today still continue to celebrate that, what is called that Seder meal, which commemorates the Exodus. So first, Paul reminds them of the origin of this important sacrament. Then he goes on to talk about the implementation of the Lord's Supper. Here's how the Christians are to do it, and here is how it is unique from the Passover that they were so used to. On the night when he was betrayed, verse 23, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So now what steps do we see in the Lord's Supper? How are we supposed to implement this in the churches? First of all, there is a blessing. When Jesus was preparing these 
disciples to take the Lord's Supper. He prayed over the bread and he prayed over the cup. He asked God's blessing over it. He thanked the Lord for providing these things. So our pursuit of the Lord's table should be marked by thankful prayer, whereby we ask God to use these elements to accomplish what he desires for them to accomplish in our lives. The participants are then to take the bread and take the cup. So they are receiving something that the Lord is giving to them, and, and God is giving those things to them through his leader, through Jesus Christ. And then after they are given the, the elements, the meaning is taught to them. Even though we have, as a church have experienced the table hundreds of times, some of you thousands of times, praise the Lord, the teaching of the purpose of the sacrament is crucial to keeping that meaning before us and refusing to let the table become something trivial or ritualistic. Think for a second how different our experience of the Lord's table would be if we didn't teach anything about it. We just said, oh, don't forget, guys, it's the first Sunday, so uh, we're going to sing one last song and then way out the door, make sure you take some bread and you take a little cup of juice or wine with you and be blessed. Uh, this is the Lord's Supper Day. We didn't teach any of the significance of it. How would that change the experience of the Lord's Supper for you? I have to believe that it would make it a very small thing. It would almost feel like an addendum, like a byline just tacked on to what we really came for. When that's not the point of the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper must carry more significance than that. And so it's only after they were reminded of the meaning that they are instructed to consume those elements. They need to know what they are doing and they need to know why. These steps are to be taken faithfully. They're to be taken every time. This is not just how they did it in the upper room, but we just have the freedom to do it any way we want. He says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup. So he's saying this is how it is supposed to be perpetuated from here forward. Now that doesn't necessarily describe the frequency. You know, It doesn't tell us how often we are to do this. Uh, but it does imply that it should be frequent. I don't believe that Jesus is saying, okay, the Passover was once a year, and so now just take this Lord's Supper once a year, and that'll be good. I, I think as we read the New Testament, we see a testimony of the saints gathering together regularly and that this, the, the Lord's table was often experienced. You know, Some would advocate for the Lord's table to be done every week, and, and that's not a terrible thing. I think that would be a blessing to us in so much as the meaning and the significance it's retained in it. It doesn't become just one more thing we try to cram into the end of our services. Uh, we used to, as a church, when I first uh, was on staff here uh, for years, we, we did it about four or five times a year. And that, that was just not sufficient. We, we were missing out on the blessing of the table of the Lord. We, we felt compelled to change that and to do it more frequently. So this is something that we are to do regularly and we're to do it in the pattern that God has established for us through Christ. And since the sacrament carries symbolic significance, Paul takes the time to remind these Corinthians about the meaning, the meaning of the Lord's Supper. He says, this is my body, when he speaks of that bread. Now, the, the word body in this long passage will carry two kinds of meanings. The body, of course, refers to the fact that Jesus came to earth. He took on flesh. He became incarnate with us. That's more than just filling up a shell, he took on a full human nature to be as we are so that he could fulfill the requirements required of God to man. Jesus took on a human body, and so he's saying that this bread represents my body. 
later on as we see that term body, we're going to be reminded of something that Paul's actually going to flesh out more in chapter 12, which is that the body is also a phrase that is used to describe the church of God as Christ's incarnate body now that he is with God in heaven. We know that Jesus, having been ascended to the heavens, is sitting at the Father's right hand. But the church is in some way like a body for God through which he does his will and works his plan out in the earth. So keep that in mind as we work through this passage. The bread, when we take it, is representative of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, that he came on took, and took on flesh and fulfilled the law. Now the blood is representative, of, or the juice, or the wine rather, is representative of the blood of Christ. Now, notice that he says this is the blood in the new covenant. And so if you have any background in covenantal language in the scriptures, you'll know that every time a covenant is ratified between God and man, a, a, an agreement of behavior between God and man where God gives blessings and consequences for man either ignoring or complying with God's command to him, you'll know that those are ratified with blood. There is a sacrifice made. Something dies when a covenant is made as a sign that those covenants are life and death arrangements. And so here Jesus is saying that this cup, when we drink of that cup, we're remembering that we've entered into covenant with the Lord, an eternal covenant that was ratified with his own blood that was shed on the cross. Now there is a teaching called transubstantiation that is popular in some circles where it is taught that the bread that you consume and the wine that you consume or the juice that you consume is literally becoming the physical body and blood of Jesus as you eat it. Now those who usually believe that, they don't believe that it becomes like chemically body and blood, but they, they believe that that substance is now just as much the body and blood of Jesus as his physical body and blood was. And that's an error. Because think about this. When they were taking the supper for the first time, Jesus was standing right in front of them. So if he says to them, this is my body and my blood, but his body and his blood is right in front of them, and they're taking these elements, that's disingenuous. That would mean that the first Lord's Supper wasn't even real. So the reason why this doctrine has kind of taken root is because there is a, a misunderstanding of forgiveness in many circles. Whereas some people believe that the blood of Christ on the cross covers your sins and washes you clean, but you're going to sin again, so you're going to need that blood over and over again. And so some churches teach that when you come and you take communion, that you're actually experiencing the cleansing impact of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection anew. But friends, that is, that is a wrong way of looking at things. Hebrews 7.27 says, Jesus has no need, like those high priests, meaning those high priests in the Old Covenant, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this for all when he offered up himself. This is a once and for all act that Christ has done. It doesn't need to happen again. And so there is no need for us to think of those elements as the literal blood and body of Jesus Christ. This is strong figurative language, and we should think of it for what it is. It is representative. He says, do this in remembrance of me. Now this is more than just having a picture on the wall that we look at every once in a while that, you know, inspires our memories of what Christ has done. But it is clearly a marker pointing back to the actions of the one who changed everything. And when we think about what Christ did, it should also spark in our minds the fact that he's still doing for us everything that we need. 
that our reliance must be in Christ every hour of every day. We're told also here that we need to do this in a worthy manner. Now, there's a difference. Some translations will say, in, don't do this unworthily, and some will say, in an unworthy manner. And I prefer that second translation. I think it's much more clear. Because the worth here is not on you. It's on the way that you do it. See, these Corinthians were practicing the Lord's Supper in a way, in a manner that was unworthy of Christ. A lot of heartache, a lot of unnecessary trembling and fear has fallen on people who, they get ready on Sunday morning, they look at that calendar, see it's the first Sunday, and they think, oh, I really hope I'm worthy today. I really hope that, you know, the, the catalog of sins that I've committed, that I didn't forget to ask for forgiveness for any of them, or that I did good things to counter... Oh, I really hope I'm worthy. Friends, let me just take the burden off your shoulder. You're not worthy. And I'm not worthy. None of us is worthy. That is not the point of the table. The table is not a qualification for you. You come to the table because of your great need. If you were worthy, you wouldn't need the table. You come to the table because you need Jesus. And Jesus gave you everything you needed at the cross. And so you come to celebrate that victory and to recognize that you are not worthy, but He is worthy. Okay. So when it says here, don't eat of it in an unworthy manner, He's saying don't do this in a way that breaks out of the tradition that I have given to you. Don't do this in a way that ruins the unity that's supposed to come from the Lord's table. Having been brought near to God by the blood of the Lamb, we are to remain near to Him. And the Lord's Supper is a means by which we remain near to the Lord God. By thinking these things through carefully, by praying about them, by seeing these symbols before our eyes, we can't fall into this pattern of just letting church become pragmatic help for life that makes you a better person, maybe a little less unhappy, but it's not really about Jesus. The sacrament keeps it about Christ. When we think about the work that he did and the victory that he won for us, it gives us a happy, thankful heart for the fact that he is triumphant even when we are weak. And that nearness, or that nearness rather, that we are supposed to have does not only concern our nearness with the Savior, although that's prime. In chapter 10, Paul had alluded to the Lord's Supper as he urged the Corinthians not to fall back into the idolatry that plagued Israel in earlier years. He said in 1 Corinthians 10, Verses 16 through 18, the cup of blessing that we bless, meaning the cup at the Lord's Supper, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? A participation. The bread that we break, meaning the bread that we use at the Lord's table, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because we are, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. See how the two uses of the word body there are both in play? the body of the incarnate Christ, but also the body being the church. Many parts, one body representative of Jesus. Because we are, who are many are one body, we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in that altar? And so, yes, this table is first and foremost about nearness to the Lord. But there's another very important element to this table. It's about nearness to each other as well. We have been brought near to one another as a family because of what Christ has done. He has given 
His life so that we might all be saved in the same way. Faith in Jesus Christ, repentance of our sin, trusting in the Lord God and His provision. How do we participate, you might ask, in the Lord's suffering? A lot of people, they just, I don't understand how that, that happened. I didn't go to the cross with Jesus. You know, we are not suffering the way that He's suffering, but our sins went to the cross with Jesus. That's what we contribute. In fact, the Puritan preacher Jonathan Edwards is famously credited with saying, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. And so that is how we participate in the suffering of Christ. We contribute the sin that was necessary or that needed to be atoned for by His perfect blood. But don't miss how Paul describes this participation. He says, the sacrament of communion brings about two kinds of unity. Unity with Jesus in His suffering and unity with one another through the fellowship of the saints who've been blessed in like manner through Christ. Every Christian, having been brought near to God by the blood of the Son, should be experiencing a holy unity with those who've been made new and accepted into the family of God. Verse 17, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices the participants at the altar? Again, and that's actually mis mislabeled there. That's 1 Corinthians 10 again. We are participants together in the work that Christ has done. Since we have unity with Christ, as we participate together with his, in His suffering with Him, we also have unity with the, with the body, with the church, as we together partake of the only grace that saves us. Every believer needs this grace. And every believer needs this regularly, on a regular basis. From the origin, the implementation, and the meaning of the sacrament, one thing should become abundantly clear. The Lord's table is not something to be taken lightly. It is holy, and it must be approached with reverence. This is not how the Corinthians were handling it, by the way. There was a disregard for the poor members of the congregation in Corinth. And this is really where we drive at the heart of the correction that was needed for these Corinthians. In verse 21, we see that in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. And now there's, there's evidence here that the sacrament was handled in conjunction with some kind of a meal, almost like uh, the first Baptist potluck, right? They came together and they had dinner together, but in the course of that dinner, perhaps they were also recognizing the food or the bread and the cup as the sacrament that looked back on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But what was going on in Corinth was that this meal, not everybody had enough money to eat well there. So those who had much would bring lavish spreads for themselves and for their nearest friends. And those who were poor, those who were lacking resources, all they would get, maybe a little piece of bread, maybe a little drink of, of the wine, that's all they would get. And so there was disparity. So instead of a time of celebration where we come together where we're all experiencing the unity that we have in the one Christ who saves, there was a great discrepancy in the church where some seemed super blessed and others had just the tiniest little bit or nothing at all. This was completely opposite of the unity that God wanted to instill in His people through the Lord's Supper. And so Paul is correcting the error of these Corinthians. It says, One man goes hungry. So many of the Corinthians, you might remember, were freed slaves or were still currently slaves. They had very little in the way of, 
of personal resources. But the gospel doesn't discriminate. And so even in that same congregation, there were very wealthy people who were saved by Jesus Christ. And they had more to provide for their meal, and they weren't sharing it with others. It says one here gets drunk. Some were even so gluttonous in their celebration that they were drinking so much alcohol they were becoming drunk by it, which was a disgrace to the, the Lord's Supper as, as it being a sin. Drunkenness is a sin. So consider the strong language that Paul uses in the next verse here. He says, Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? He's urging these Corinthians to practice the Lord's table in such a way that they will have unity with the Father and with the Son and with the Spirit, but that they will also have unity with one another, that they will not be inconsiderate of their brothers and sisters in Christ, and that they will be one people together in the way that they in the way that they practice this. You know, our tendency is to zero in on the drunkenness that has happened at such meals. But the passage's overall focus is much more concerned with the disparity that's caused between the different people at church, the different classes. Some were fed well, some were starving. And this is a deficiency in love in the church in Corinth. This was an ignorance of the meaning of the sacrifice. These wealthier believers were approaching the table without a humble awareness of their own sin. If they were, they would see that those who had little needed help, and they would have given. They were not observing the table in a united and uniform way, and the inconsistencies were resulting in a family that felt fractured to those who came. So because of this, they shouldn't be calling what they were doing the Lord's Supper. It was something distorted, something different. In providing the sacrament for us, the Lord gave us what we need. So let us be careful not to adapt the Lord's Supper in some way to make it what we prefer it to be. This is not a place, the Lord's table is not a place for us to be innovative or creative, friends. And that's not to say that it has to look 100% exactly the same everywhere we go. We, even as a church, do it two different ways. Sometimes we pass the elements out to you. Sometimes we ask you to come up and receive them on your own. But what we don't change is any of these fundamental staples that make the Lord's table what it is. Paul is not just concerned with diagnosis here. He's not here just to tell the Corinthians they are doing it wrong. And so therefore he provides two remedies that will help these Corinthians get things back on track. One is an internal remedy and one is an external remedy. So the internal remedy is this. Examine yourself. 1 Corinthians 11, 27-32 Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself and then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment to himself. How do we do that at First Family Church? How do we follow this guideline by Paul? We do that in two ways. First of all, we do communion consistently. It is always at least on the first Sunday of each month. That gives our congregation a chance to be thoughtful of these things and to come with a prepared heart. Um, we are grateful when people come happy to take communion, ex excited about that. But we also take some time within the celebration of the Lord's Supper for reflection and for prayer. We do not want autopilot communion to become an option for us, where you just sort of put your mind on rest and buzz through it without really thinking about it or, or coming to any conclusions. We ask people to search your heart and ask that yourself if you are taking this seriously. Think about uh, 
how the Lord has redeemed you from your sin. Appreciate that. Offer Him praise and gratitude in that time of personal prayer. Now, sadly, sometimes this call to self-examination has led unnecessarily to guilt in some. This can maybe be traced back to some who have been exposed to that penance model of sacraments in the, in the Catholic Church. So let me say two things about this. Any sin that you bring to the cross should grieve you. We should hate our sin. We should, we should desire for Christ to set us free from any semblance of temptation in our lives. But it should grieve you only in so much as you, as you know Christ had to die for it. He did die for it. It is overcome. It is defeated in Christ. So please, brothers and sisters, if Jesus is your Savior, do not act as though you are defeated by sin if Christ is your Savior. You have every resource to overcome whatever sin is in your life and pursue Him. Trust in Him. Let the grace that you receive in the Lord's table remind you that there is victory in Jesus Christ. Bring the sin to Him and rejoice in the power of the cross. Secondly, this prayer of reflection being rooted in the passage that we have here in, in 1 Corinthians 11, is not about you singular only. It's about you plural as a church. When you examine your heart in the spirit of this passage in 1 Corinthians, it should not just be about only your personal sin, but about your participation in the body of Christ, the church to which you belong. Are you caring about those who are around you here at the church? Are you praying for them? Are you united to them in service to the king and in growth as a disciple? Are you dealing with any of the offenses or tensions that might exist between you and a brother or sister at the church? Think about these things when you examine your heart. And if you, if you de determine in your heart that, that you've been deficient in that, then use that as a launching pad Then then go pursue a brother and sister in Christ and, and confess a sin to them or confess to them that you haven't forgiven them of a sin they've committed against you. Let this be an urging for us that division in the church is not the will of God. The sacrament is not to become some overly personal experience where the rest of the members of the church just fade away. And then we just have our own little zone where we're taking this together. It's just me and Jesus during the, the Lord's table. That's not the intention of this sacrament. It nourishes us as a family, as the body of Christ. And that's why again and again in this passage, you're going to see the word together. When we come together, when we are gathered together, this is to remind us that the church gathered is where we should experience communion. So that is the internal remedy. Think about your heart. Think about how you handle these things. But he also offers an external remedy. He says, let your physical hunger be satisfied at home. In other words, 1 Corinthians, so then my brother, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. That word wait there is a little tricky in the Greek. It could mean accept one another, receive one another. Uh, in other words, consider one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. And the other things I will give directions for when I come. So in, in verse 22 earlier, Paul had asked, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? In other words, what he's saying here is, don't turn this into something that it's not. The word fellowship in our day-to-day -day usage seems to have taken on kind of two parallel meanings. Some people think that fellowship just means anytime we do anything with anybody else. And in some ways, that could possibly be fellowship. 
But when the scripture talks about the fellowship that we're to pursue, it should be a holier communion. It should be a holy gathering of the saints where we come together as redeemed people and rejoice in the redemption that has been given to us by Christ. By the way, we're all Baptists here, so I have to calm your fears. This is not a verse against potlucks. All right? This is not <laughs> condemning getting together as the church to eat food. Right? There's nothing wrong with that. This is simply saying that you should never let anything override the true purpose and meaning of the Lord's table. So do the Lord's table right. And then let's have a potluck afterwards. But let's share that food together. That means that I can't just go off to the corner there with my brother who does ribs really good and the two of us just chow down and eat all the ribs while everyone else is getting the Little Caesars pizza. That's not how it works. We are a church gathered who is to consider one another and care for each other's needs in Christ. In the context of the Lord's Supper, it is not for physical nutrition, but for spiritual. So don't miss the meaning by making it something that it's not. The problem is not that some are wealthy and shouldn't be here. That's not the problem at hand. He doesn't say, stop eating that nice food. He says, when you come together, eat what everybody else is eating. Be unified. He doesn't forbid eating expensive stuff. And we don't have to be just living off of top ramen in order to be holy people, okay? Plenty of poor people give no attention to the word. They have no honor for Christ at all. So it's not a financial matter. It was not what they had but it's what they weren't willing to share. Do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? That, this is what it means in verse 29. For if anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment to himself. That means anyone who brings a feast for themselves but has no regard to the body of Christ, the church of gathered believers, then he's eating and drinking judgment to himself. And this is one of the reasons that we don't advocate taking communion privately. During the, the COVID time, when we weren't as able to gather like we were, a lot of people were like, let's just send communion home with families. Let's just have families do it themselves. But really, look at chapter 11, what it says about communion. It is to be done together with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's to be done right. So it doesn't make a lot of good sense to like, have everyone do it their own way in their own houses, when this is an important matter, such so that in Corinth, because they weren't doing things properly, some of them were getting sick, some of them had even passed away, and prophetically, the Apostle Paul says here, it's because of the way you're dealing with your communion. It's because you are taking the Lord's table so lightly. So it was important for the Corinthians to correct this lack of unity. They were, in fact, experiencing a divine rebuke from their Father in heaven for the unloving manner in which they were treating the Lord's table. Some had fallen ill, others had died as a result. Now, did this mean that their neglect in this area had condemned them to hell? Thankfully, it did not. Verse 32 says, But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. And so Paul's closing comments here are, they're hopeful. There's a path back. There is correction that is possible here. If their faith is real, this doesn't have to disqualify them. They need to repent as they always should and return to the right way of doing things. The father who loves his children will chasten his children, not for their destruction, but for their good. Even better, though, 
Let us as a church be determined not to leave the path in the first place. Let us enjoy the blessings of the table and the unity that it illustrates and let us enjoy these things the way that God has prescribed them for us. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer? God, we thank you for what you have taught us today and we are appreciative, Lord, of even our weakness, God, which helps us to depend more readily on you. Father, I pray that you would strip away our pride and, and help us to come before you ready to be guided and directed. You are our head, Christ. And so thank you, Lord, for leading us in these words. Help us, God, to be faithful as elders, to guard the table properly. And next week as we speak about the the divisions that come or the distinctions that come, as we think about the Lord's table, give us humility in that as well. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.